Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. And I'm in conversation today with Mike Shao. Mike is a mountaineer, entrepreneur, and author. With early success as an entrepreneur at age 15 and over 20 years of global financial investment experience, Mike brings his business acumen and altruistic heart to lead and support local and international mentorship, fundraising, and educational initiatives. These include the education of girls and student mentorship in Nepal outdoor youth leadership for those facing barriers to access nature, and holistic indigenous leadership development in British Columbia. In 2020, Mike released his first book, 
the story of karma, finding love and truth in the lost valley of the Himalaya from Rocky Mountain Books. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you very much, Sharon. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for joining me. Congratulations on the release of your book this past year. I know it's a strange time to be releasing a book. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know. I mean, some people have asked me, are you sure you know what you're doing? You're kind of releasing a book in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, but, you know, I thought, why not? And yeah, there's things that we can't do in terms of in-person meetings, and I can't go to bookstores and do book signings and that sort of thing. But um, but one of the things the book is about, which we can get into, is about deep human connection and finding love in, in the most unexpected ways. And I think that's something that um, perhaps really resonates with, with people, given what's happening in our world today. I'm just so curious, what was your uh, business venture at age 15? <laughs> well, um, well, yeah, it's kind of a, a bit of a story. But the funny thing is, I, my dream was to become a creative writer when I was in high school. And that was kind of what I thought I would do. And, and one day I was, I was on this little trip to Germany, to this town where my father actually, where he's from, called Zollingen. And, and in that town, they're famous for making anything out of steel. And so as a 15-year-old kid, I, I was very excited about getting this um, a kind of an authentic for, hand-forged sword. Um, and I, this was before Google and before the internet, so we couldn't just search, you know, blacksmiths in this town. And so my cousin and I, we went around and, and we found this blacksmith. And he was so, uh, I guess, touched that this kid from Canada had come halfway around the world to see him. He he pulled this sword out from behind his desk and he just gave it to me. Um, you know, he said a gift for you. And, and I was kind of taken aback. And, and then he asked me a question that, that changed my life, which was, um, you know, do you think anyone else where you're from would like my swords? And I said, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I had this whole idea as a, again, a 15 year old kid, I knew nothing about business, but I had this whole idea, you know, as I was flying back and I presented it to my parents that I wanted to start this business and, and never, uh, never sold a sword, but uh, but what was happening around in this little town in Germany was that all these other manufacturers were were kind of learning about this import operation in North America, and they had no idea I was a little kid. You know, I was a kid in this little town, um, but I started getting all these samples from manicure sets and kitchen scissors and sewing scissors, hairdressing mm -hmm. things, and, and uh, yeah, and 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 those things started moving. And one day I got this big box of stainless steel kitchenware. Um, and you know, anything to do with the kitchen was totally uninteresting to me at that time. But, um, but my dad said, Oh, why don't you, you know, why don't you go out and, and, and take it to a few kitchen stores? And so I did that. And, and this was, this was mid nineties when the kitchen was kind of becoming this focal point of the household. So everybody wanted their kitchenware to be, you know, attractive and stainless steel and high, high functioning as well. And, and prior to that, it was kind of plastic and, and lower quality. So I was the first one to bring stainless steel kitchenware. Uh, into North America, and my business just kind of went through the roof. And you know, my dad came out of retirement. We converted my parents' home into a warehouse, like their garage, into a warehouse, and um, I hired a sales rep. And anyway, it just kind of went from there. So um, it wasn't until I was in my early 30s actually that I got back into uh, into writing. That's fantastic. So how did you get involved with Nepal? Right. Yeah. So that was back in 20, 2011. Um, well, actually, Nepal had been it had this place in my heart. I've always wanted to go there since I was a kid. 
And I remember looking at pictures and National Geographic magazines and reading stories about it. And for some reason, it had this really, you know, kind of resonated very deeply with me. And my sister even gave me like a Lonely Planet book one year when I was about 15, 16 years old. And all I could think about was running over to Nepal <laughs> at once with this book. And um, but, you know, again, I, I, I had my career going, so I didn't have the time. And, and you know, when I was younger, I didn't have the money. Um, so it wasn't until I, yeah, we sat down with this friend uh, who had been trekking in Nepal for, for decades. And he had been going into some of the most obscure places. Um, and this was in 2011. And he told us, my wife and I, about this little valley uh, called the Lost Valley of Narfu. And at that time, it had just been opened up. To the outside world. Prior to that, it had been closed off um, for generations. So, yeah. So when I saw the pictures of this this valley and the people there, the culture, it just it reminded me of those pictures that I saw when I was a kid. And I thought, you know, this is the place that uh, that I, I think I'm meant to go to. And it wasn't even really a decision that Chantal and I talked about. We just kind of looked at each other, like, okay, this is where we're going. And and one of the things that Mick, our, our friend, said was that because the valley was now open, um, it was going to be experienced in some unprecedented change. So cultural change and social change with more people going in and more people in the villages kind of coming out. So we thought, well, why not, um, why not put together a little team, a little team of artists? So we had a, this, uh, this kind of hippie musician. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, a, a biologist, nature artist, a cowboy <laughs> from Calgary. And a Polish professor who was a photographer, and then Chantal and I, we would do some filming, and we thought, well, let's just observe and learn from the people there, and try and capture a moment in time uh, before it, you know things change too much. And uh, and then I, I came across this picture um, amongst his pictures of this white pyramidal mountain, and it almost looked like a white pyramid just coming out of the the stony earth. And as a, as a mountaineering fanatic, I, I thought. Oh my goodness! This is this is the mountain of my dreams. This is the mountain I I need to go and find and and try and climb. And so you did. You went and tried to climb it. Well, I I tried to. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got, so we got into this valley, and and you got to imagine this is we'd have been trekking for you know over a week at this point, and and in these little villages. There's two main villages in this valley um, called Nar and Fu, and. And both villages are sitting around fourteen thousand feet in elevation, uh, so you're, you're you're quite out there. And the people there are living, living very authentically; like they're connected to their the way they've been living for the last several hundred years. Um, and so, it's just a very magical place. Actually, the valley is considered a bayul, uh, which, well, the Dalai Lama himself has has said it's a place where the physical and spiritual realms coalesce more closely together. Mm. And we could certainly we could certainly feel that out there. Um, but I spent two days reconnaissance trying to find this mountain, and we found it, my two Sherpa guides and I. Um, and it was the most glorious thing I can <laughs> I could ever describe. But um, but that's when everything started kind of spiraling out of control. We we got caught in a snowstorm at seventeen thousand feet, and and um, you know one of my gear bags with all my climbing gear, my my the mule that was carrying it, it took off on us and. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> come back ever or well, never. We found it, yeah two days later we found it <laughs> so, um, so all these things were happening and it just kind of forced me to hunker down in this little village of Fu and and start to question you know why am i here in the himalaya like what does this journey mean to me um 
kind of separating myself from the mountain, so to speak. Um, I mean, the mountain, since I was a teenager, I, I was thinking about climbing there and, and dreaming of it. And it had kind of fused as, as it had become part of my identity, uh, I guess. And, and so, you know, having the time in the mountains to, to try and, you know, separate that uh, now, it, it's almost like, you know, when we talk about the Bardo, right, you kind of enter this place of transition and part of, part of you, um, you know, is changed or no longer is relevant. And, and so I think that's kind of what happened. I mean, it's almost like part of me, that, that dream sort of died on the mountain, so to speak. And, and part of me was being reborn into something else. And, and I didn't know what at that point, but I realized later that the mountain was actually more of a guide for me. It was more of a beacon kind of calling me to that place, but for a much deeper and meaningful experience. So living in Nepal, in effect, right, is what you were doing and um, encountering people, encountering children and, and uh, I guess, understanding, coming to understand sort of the nature of education in, in that place and what For was sure. lacking. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. <laughs> because what happened was I was connecting a lot with the locals when I was hunkering down in that village. And, and one of the things, I met this one young man named Sanam Dorje. And, and Sanam Dorje, he had left the village when he was 14. Uh, he had to travel all the way down to India to get an education. And, uh, and he had just come back to the village at that point. Uh, he had been gone for seven years. Seven years, he hadn't seen his family, mm. uh, or his village, his home. Um, and our paths happened to cross exactly at that moment. And so he was telling me a lot about, um, you know, we'd go on these daily walks. We became friends over multiple days and, and he'd share with me about, um, you know, about Tibetan Buddhism. He'd share with me about, uh, the plight of the village and about the importance of education. And, and, and he, you know, he said that, uh, well, there's a saying that I learned up there where the parents, um, they actually say they'd rather their kids have a pencil in the hand versus a strap around the forehead. Uh, because mm. if you imagine how the Nepalese, they carry things, right? Um, and I tried to carry something like, like that, and it's extremely difficult. But yeah. Um, but yeah, so he was telling us about that and, and how, you know, by the time the kids are sort of five, six years old, they have to start working in the fields, very hard labor. Um, infant mortality is, is very high up there in the mountains. Kids end up dying from simple things like malnutrition or, or common diseases. And, um, and some of the girls, you know, when they're at that time, when they were 14, 15 years old, they would start getting married and having their own families. So it's just a very different way up there. And what I learned was that education kind of provides more choice, um, particularly for girls, um, but choice so that they have, they, they can kind of dream bigger, I guess, or they can, you know, they can think outside of, of, of their village in, in terms of whether they want a career or, or do something different. So, so that was kind of with me as I was going through this. I guess this identity crisis of <laughs> why is my dream of the mountain being crushed? Um, but what happened was it actually guided us to this other little village called Nar, which I don't think I would have visited had I tried to climb. Um, and when we got there, we learned that there was this little stone school. And after all the conversations I had and what I learned um, about education, I thought, you know, we got to go visit this school and see what they're doing there. And so, uh, so that's what we did. And we get to the school, and there is this little uh, seven-year-old girl teaching English numbers to this group of kids, about seventeen kids. And I thought, okay, this is this is interesting. Um, and I felt, you know, there was this deep connection I felt to this girl. I mean, we'd seen hundreds of kids up until that point, but for some reason, I felt like there was this 
um, almost karmic, like this familial connection to this, this little girl. Um, and so we were kind of observing there and, um, and we, we met the teacher. He was kind of looming in the back and, and he'd been sent there from, from his village, which was a two week journey away. And, and he'd, you know, he was far away from his family and his people. Um, so he, he told us he had felt, felt like he was uh, banished to the end of the earth kind of thing. Um, but they, the kids, they caught sight of, um, of the guitar that was slung over our musician's shoulder and they'd never seen a guitar before. Um, so that you could tell that they were kind of, uh, interested in, you know, can they play some music? And, and Michael, our the musician, he was, he's an entertainer. So he, he stepped right up there and started teaching them, teaching the kids this, uh, this jazzed up rendition of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Um, and I, I was, I was like, Michael, you, you know, why not just teach them the normal version of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star? Cause it had all these melodic twists. And I thought, you know, how are the kids going to catch on to this? Um, but they did and they were singing back, you know, in perfect unison and they were getting into it. And, and I guess the teacher, um, he got a little bit motivated. So he brought out this Nepali drum, um, and, uh, and wanted the kids to dance in front of us one at a time. Um, and he started with this little girl who had been teaching the numbers so confidently. He, he kind of told her like, you know, dance, dance, you know, dance for these people now. And, um, and you could see her, she was just, petrified um mm. just almost like uh she was frozen in the corner and, and and almost internally crying um and and so chantal she couldn't take it she just marched up there um started doing her best impression of this traditional nepali dance uh with her arms waving around and and the little girl you could see she forgot everything she forgot everyone watching and she just started focusing on nepal or on, on chantal and uh and, and Chantal was like trying to get her to teach her, but because Chantal's moves were all improvised and the little girl was trying to copy Chantal's improvised moves. It was the most beautiful thing, you know, these almost like two little spirits um, dancing in front of these 7,000 meter peaks. Um, and so that's kind of what sparked this connection, which this is all back in 2012. And um, this connection that kind of changed my life, you know, over the next nine years, um, Chantal and I, we would, go back to Nepal every eight to 10 months and, and, and growing our relationship with the little girl's name we learned was Karma and, uh, and her little sister Pemba and their family. And we've become family over, over these years. And, and it's just been, um, yeah, it's just been the most beautiful experience of, uh, of my life. Well, it's so touching to hear, like, say those parents who, like parents around the world want an easier life for their children than the one they have or, uh, more fulfilled or or more flourishing life for their children than mm. the one they have. So that's quite an incredible statement. It's better to have a pencil in your hand, especially for a generation that might not have had you know so much of that opportunity themselves. Sure. So that was really touching just to to hear that and and the vision of those parents is is quite vast in a way. You know to to picture a life that might be very different. And then, you know, I felt kind of the poignancy of the consequence of that is that your child goes away for seven years. Mm. Yeah, no. And that, that was something that Chantal and I, we would, we were questioning all the time because, you know, they have a very rich culture in their village and, and, and they're very proud about the village. 
Um, but in order to get this education, they would have to leave. So mm -hmm. there was always this balance of, um, well, their I think their father put it, the father is a very wise man, and he put it best to me. He said one day to me that, um, well, two things. He said, one is that he never wants the girls to forget where they're from. Uh, mm -hmm. He never wants them to forget their dharma. And, um, and at the same time, he wants them to, to have more choice in life. Mm -hmm. And so he feels like they can, you know, they can, they can go farther in life uh, with the help of us, with the help of Shantalami. And so that kind of opened up this unique relationship of almost co-parenting, right? You know, how do you, how do you help two little girls and work with their parents so that they don't lose sight of their values, um, you know, their cultural values, and at the same time, they're able to to kind of have choice in this modern world when the modern world is actually encroaching in in their village as mm -hmm. as we speak as well. So so that that's kind of what we left the village with. Um, we ended up having a conversation with with the mother because the father was actually at that time he was away with the yaks, but the mother was there and we had a conversation in her home around this little dung fueled stove. And actually, before she even got home, I remember Karma. She brought us in by the hand. She put out the little mats for us to sit on. And she got the fire going. Uh, she got the kettle, you know, with the water for the tea and, and all this while looking after her three-year-old sister. And uh, and again, she was seven at that time. And I was just like looking at this. Wow, you know, this is incredible. Uh, and her mom comes home. Mom's very graceful. And and uh, and just the first thing she does was start making us tea. And, and so, you know, so we had this very profound conversation all through broken translation because they, they speak a very unique dialect up there. But um, But they expressed again that, that the education is the most important thing for them. And so we thought, okay, well, let's try and work with the parents. We'll, we, we'll see what we can find. So Chantal and I, we, we left and, and we didn't know, we knew that the school, again, according to their wishes, that it had to be something that was aligned with them culturally because they're more actually Tibetan in the mountains there. Um, most of Hindu or most of uh, Nepal is Hindu and, and they actually operate on, on a bit of a caste system as well. So if karma, was placed in any government school, for example, there could be rise for racial discrimination. So we, we knew that it had to be culturally aligned with that, with their sort of the Tibetan Buddhism. And we got back to Kathmandu. We couldn't find anything. Um, we actually got back to Canada and kept searching. And um, I think almost a month went by uh, and almost we were losing hope a little bit. But one night up popped this... Um, this school, Sri Mangaldip SMD School for Himalayan Children. And it said for the lost children of the Himalaya. And on the front was this picture of um, kids, kids that looked like the kids, uh, Karma and her classmates that one day at the school where they had, you know, sunburnt cheeks to the point of almost getting blisters and, and uh, snot, you know, dripping down their upper lips and mm -hmm. clothes that were unraveling at the sleeves. And, and so, you know, but we thought, okay, this is perfect. And, and we said, who founded this school? And, and the school was founded by this um, uh, Tibetan Lama, this high-ranking Tibetan Lama who fled Tibet in the 1950s, and, and he's now in his 80s. Um, but we thought, okay, this is perfect. So we wrote the school once, and about a week went by, the school director wrote back, and she said, you know, thank you for sharing this story. Uh, it's very touching, but I have to tell you that we have 400 kids on the wait list. We're, we've got 500 kids at the school. We're busting at the seams. We have kids being dropped off on the stairs that we have to turn away. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and because of all that, there's only one person who can admit new kids into the school. And that is this 80 plus year old um, Thrangu Rinpoche. Hmm. 
this uh, this llama and and so I, I just felt, I remember reading her email and I felt like I was being dropped down this black hole like why are all these barriers stacked against this one little girl in the mountains and um, who just wants to learn and um, but then the school director because Chantal had put our address in the email signature uh, she said well I see that you're in Vancouver in Canada um, you may be interested to know that this uh, Thrangu Rinpoche right now for the next few days is recovering from an illness at his monastery in a place called Richmond, which was a 25 minute drive from our home. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, anyway, so that's kind of how the whole connection with the school came about. And, um, and, and then we were able to get Karma and her little sister eventually into the school and, and, uh, and then visit the school every year. And, and that kind of created more connection there as well. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, synchronicity is sometimes, right? Um, yeah, no, it's, it's been beautiful. I mean, you can't, I, I couldn't plan for stuff like that. And, and the synchronicities are almost, um, you know, guiding lights, right? Uh, almost kind of reminders that, you know, that what we're doing, um, we're kind of on the, the right path, so to speak. Well, the pattern that you're describing is almost like when you get to your lowest, you know, <laughs> and you give up like why is my dream shattered why can't i get up the mountain why can't i get these little girls into school you know uh that's when something happens <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and 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 kind of tapping into um you know into uh more into the heart i i realized that you know the whole journey of the mountain like wanting to climb it was more uh almost ego driven right or or more sort of driven from my mind whereas you know starting to listen tune in more into the heart was when you know these doorways these kind of invisible doorways uh, started opening into a much deeper um, and meaningful way so was your experience with karma and her sister and the school and uh i i would imagine the people teaching in the school and, and just the whole community um is that has that inspired you for some of this other work that you're doing that i read out in your bio <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no, it's interesting because I, I guess this whole notion of giving service, it, it's something that, I mean, I never thought about it in that way. Um, you know, I just thought about, okay, well, I just feel like I should be doing the right thing. Um, and so even before Nepal, Chantal and I, we had um, we had led two sort of expeditions, um, one up Mount Kilimanjaro and one up Pico de Orizaba in Mexico, um, which is the third highest mountain in North America. But we had done these fundraising um, expeditions for this local charity that helps youth get outside, um, youth with uh, barriers, physical and mental barriers. Um, so so that's kind of what, I guess, triggered it. And Chantal, I, you know, I had been climbing since I was a teenager, but uh, climbing can be a very selfish uh, thing. But Chantal said, you know, when we talked about Mount Kilimanjaro, back, this was all back in 2010, um, she Chantal had been suffering from debilitating migraines since mm -hmm. she was very young. So she thought, okay, well, when she climbs Kilimanjaro, she wants to do it for a cause or for something bigger than herself. Um, and I realized at that time as well that nature and get, being able to get outside was, it had provided such an instrumental thing for me in terms of who I am. So I thought, you know, it was kind of a no brainer if I can help more kids get outside and and particularly kids with um, with barriers to you know to access nature, um, you know that for me was was kind of a no brainer. So so that's kind of what triggered 
the fundraising. But um, but yeah, I, I guess um, you know when you start to climb from a very young age, I was fortunate enough to have this mentor, and and being in the mountains, one of the things it taught me was um, that I'm I'm a just I'm a very tiny fragment of this entire picture around us. And so it helped me kind of get out of my own self, so to, so to speak. Um, so maybe that's part of what got me thinking about different worldviews and, and different ways and, and trying to learn from others. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of what, what started that journey down that path. And, and then the whole journey with Karma and Pemba, you know, I never looked at it as, as sort of service or anything like that. I mean, it was just kind of listening to the language of the heart. I mean, this is a journey of love and, and uh you know as i said like familial connection so um but with the school chantal and i we've done a lot of work as well um as a result of the connection with karma and pemba and um and again it's just kind of been inspired by these two little girls from the middle of the mountains there um if we can help you know why why wouldn't we help right that's fantastic um because i mean i think it's it's the most appropriate spirit and, and uh, it's how we meet one another. You know, we find one another and, and uh, the ways that we all share this longing to be happy, to feel whole, um, to feel connected. Mm. And connection really does seem to be at the basis of everything that you do, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. It, it's, I guess the biggest th- thing I've learned from, these two little girls is um well is is connecting with with who we innately are at the very core right i mean i i don't think um you know this again this if we go back to this idea of giving service it's not about doing something like that necessarily it's about just being who we innately are um and they've they've kind of helped me understand that through this deep human connection uh so connection with them of course but also uncovering a deeper level of connection um, within myself so it's really it's just so interesting that you um you're not importing swords anymore <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you went in a very different direction <laughs> yeah. um maybe you could say something about the fulfillment that you find in um and i like you know taking this away from the framework of service which uh is also a beautiful thing, but can be very dualistic mm. um, to the sense of, you know, sort of like finding people like you found these little girls and one could easily feel a sense of estrangement. Their experience is very different than ours, um, perhaps on one level and it's the most obvious level. And uh, to sort of reach beyond those differences and, and to, as you say, having a, a familial sense is also, it's a moment of recognition. Like, oh, we share so many things of the heart. We share the deeper mm-hmm. things in life, even though on the surface our lives look look totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very important point, uh, particularly in the, in the context of our world today. Um, you know, because if I think about, well, I think there was a sequencing in it as well, because if we had for example, being parachuted into the middle of the village and seeing karma there, you know, we may not have responded in that way. So I think it was the whole sequencing of, 
spending time in that valley, unraveling my own mind from that objective of climbing, um, kind of, you know, having those conversations with the young man, Sanam Dorje, about the education. So all these things happened in a way that um, by the time we met Karma, um, our, our, our hearts were kind of wide open. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, but I, I think it's so important to, as you say, to, to listen to that, the language of the heart, um, particularly today, I, I think from what I see and, and I'm, and I'm observing in the world, like, I think there's a lot of judgment happening right now. Um, judgment on others, even judgment on, you know, self-judgment, um, which can be a good thing in some ways and, and needed based on, um, you know, what people are, are uncovering within themselves and how we're doing things and how we're relating to others from different walks of life. But, um, but I think the key is to not forget and not forget to listen to our heart. Um, because that's what, that's where we can speak the closest to each other and, and the closest, you know, to ourselves. We can, we can kind of learn to understand who we are, like our true nature. Um, and so I think, tapping into the more we tap into that and the more we act on that and share stories of that um the more the the easier it can be for us to connect with each other on that level and start to act in a way that that is the source of um of you know of what motivates us not not from something in our mind do you ever feel like i mean i think one of the things that really dissuades people from moving to that place that you're describing um, is the feeling that they can't do enough, you know, like they, they can't like totally revitalize a valley, you know, in Nepal or, <laughs> yeah. or have every child that they so wish could get out in nature, uh, be able to get out in nature. And so, um, there's something about what you just said that makes me feel like, well, then, um, if we go to that place where this is like the language of the heart, we're meeting one another through the heart, um, we don't feel so discouraged maybe from uh, just the sheer um, intensity and uh, numbers of people mm-hmm. who are really struggling. I think so, yeah, because it's uh, it's easy to get wrapped up in that as well. And, and I found myself, you know, thinking that way at times, you know, how can I help more kids or, you know, how can I work with more families and or how can I help the school more? Um, but you know it, it's 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 funny because I guess you know our mind tends to go there a lot of times with trying to measure impact right mm-hmm. um and 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 you know obviously we can only do what we can do um but I think if we do the right things, i mean even for you and I to have this conversation right now, who knows who's listening to it mm-hmm. and what they might do and what kind of connection that might spark with them in the school and um sharing the story through the book. Uh, you know, I've had people tell me that they've decided to donate to the school as a result of the story. And um, so you just don't know where things are going to lead. So I think um, part of it is just, again, coming back to that centeredness. Um, and it's a practice, right? It is a practice. Um, but coming back to that centeredness of, okay, what can I do? What can I do? Um, and not really worrying about taking on the whole you know the whole picture right Mm -hmm. um just sort of coming to terms with okay if i can do what i do maybe that will you know create a bit of a ripple out there which will spark other connections and 
and who knows where those will lead. It's impossible to know where all this stuff will end up. But I think mm -hmm. if, we, if we're just doing and trusting uh, in ourselves and with the heart again, um, I think that's what we can, that's the most important thing we can do. Well, I mean, I think especially when you're talking about uh, children and education, like I, I was once teaching somewhere in a foundation and they put me in a room where I was facing a wall, which had written in big letters, um, if you can't measure it, it didn't happen. Mm. <laughs> and wow. I brought that up as I was speaking and I said, you know, I understand that from the point of view of a philanthropy or a foundation, you're giving money, you want to be sure it's to the extent you can be sure it's not just being spent frivolously or it's being totally wasted. And I said, but on the other hand, you know, uh, we enter a realm where there's so much unknown. I, and the example I used was, I said, what if you educate a child and you don't see the results for 20 years? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, do you, do you spend 20 years thinking, well, that was a waste, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, it seems a little fixed you know, and rigid to have uh, only that one sense of um, fulfillment, you know? <laughs> like Right, right. Yeah, no, and I think exactly that's it. I mean, any parent, right, who's who has their child, you know, they're not thinking about every action that they're doing um, and how that was going to, how that's going to, like, the, how to maximize impact out of that, right. right? They're just trying to do the best they can for their child, hopefully. So, um, and I think, I think that, you know, you're right. I mean, sometimes we do need to measure impact, obviously. And, you know, me coming from the business world and stuff like that, that's what we do a lot of times. But I think it's important to not apply that to every aspect of our life, like not have that be the overarching um, compass in our, mm -hmm. in our lives and how we make decisions. So when did you decide to try to write a book? Um, <laughs> well... Huh. Uh, I mean, you know, it's funny going back to our the beginning of our conversation, because as, as I mentioned, you know, it was my dream to become a writer. Yeah. Um, when I was in high school and, and sometimes my teacher would read my, my stuff in front of the class and he would often my grade 12 teacher would often encourage me to submit my work for publication and which I never did. But um, but I had this idea that I was going to become this creative writer. So I went into university with that kind of that dream. And I remember the the very first assignment I had <laughs> from university was this essay in English class uh, to write about a beautiful place in nature that has imp impacted you. And I thought, wow, this is this is like the perfect assignment for me. This is the assignment of my dreams. And so I, I poured my heart into it, and I wrote I, I, what I thought was the best piece of writing I'd ever. I looked over it two, three times, and submitted it. Uh, got it back, and I. I the first thing I saw was this weird kind of scripture. I didn't know what it was. I'm like, I, what, what is that? Um, and it, it was an F. Um, I had never received a fail on anything before, you know, let alone writing. Mm. And, um, and so I, that was basically the beginning of the end of my dream of taking creative writing in, in, in university. Because what was also happening at the time, as we talked about, um, was that little business was, that's exactly when that was starting to take off. So, I started looking, you know, into the business faculty and, and, uh, and, and just felt that the people there, the more people I met there were, um, they were kind of encouraged me to think outside of the box. Um, they were encouraging me to be creative. You know, here's your blank canvas. Whereas I felt the writing program at university was about, it's almost the opposite. They were trying to put me in a box. So, so that's kind of what pulled me in that direction. But, um, 
But then coming back in, in my early 30s, when we were in Nepal, I started journaling on this, uh, you know, as we were on this trek out there in the mountains. And, um, and then even if you, but I still at that point, I had no intention of writing this book. And, and then we started, um, my wife and I, we started sharing parts of this story over the years. Um, and no matter who was kind of sitting on the other side of the table, uh, all kinds of people of different walks of life, there was always this deep yearning to, to learn more. And, um, and I could see this emotional connection that they were having. So in 20, I think it was 2016 or so, I was taking this international development course um, at the local university here because of our involvement with the school. And that was very heavy on the writing side. And so I was writing a lot about, about my experiences in Nepal. And, and I just saw how the, the cohort there responded to the writing. And, and one day, Chantal, she, um, she was kind of looking over my shoulder and read one of my, my little essays there. And she said, Mike, she's like, this is really good. Um, you know, you should think about writing a book. And it just kind of sparked like, oh my goodness. Yeah. That why not? Right. Um, so I think that day I wrote, I started typing right away. And the first sentence that I typed there is, is still the first sentence, um, in, in the book that you'll, uh, you'll see a story of karma. So nice. Even if it had to come out in this strange virtual world. You know? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> well, you never know how things come back, right? <laughs> um, yeah. I, my dream was to become a writer, and it came about in a very roundabout way. That's really funny. Well, um, to close, uh, I would love it if you would lead everybody in a guided practice. For sure. Yeah. No, I'd be, um, I'd be honored to. Um, so... Yeah, why don't uh, I guess you know talking about these challenging times? Um, one of the things I I find helpful is um, is a kind of a visualization meditation that I tend to do. I find it it's helped me, and and so uh, yeah, so why don't we do that? Um, so first of all, if we can just um, just be at ease, be comfortable, um, try and sit straight. Or lie straight if you're lying down. Let's take a couple cleansing breaths. So deep breath in. And breath out. Take another one in. And just let it go. And I'd invite you to, to close your eyes, if you'd like. And what I'd like you to do is visualize three years from today, your perfect day in your ideal life, three years from now. You can start by, by waking up. Where are you? What does it look like when you open your eyes? What does the, the room look like? Are you, are you in a room? 
Are you with anybody? What are you thinking about as you think about your day ahead? What are you planning for? What kind of things are you are you working on? Who are the the people that you'll be meeting that day? And just carry on through that day, just letting the thoughts soak into you. One question is what would you what would your future self that day say to you now sitting there? What advice would your future self say to you now? And with that thought, let's take two more breaths. So breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Tashi Delek, and Namaste. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for joining me. It was really inspiring to hear your story. And even apart from that, I feel like you brought me to Nepal or you brought Nepal to me, <laughs> oh, which was sure. really very nice. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. And, and yeah, thank you for having me here. I'm deeply uh, honored to be here today with you. Well, thank you. So thanks to all our listeners out there. And to learn more about Mike's work, you can visit his website, which I'm going to say and then spell because uh, they're not obviously connected the, the way you pronounce it and the way you spell it. Um, it's 
michaelshow.com, and that is spelled www.michaelshauch.com. So you can bet I had to rehearse quite a number of times how to pronounce his name. Uh, so you can visit michaelshow.com and get yourself a copy of his new book, A Story of Karma, wherever books are sold. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.